Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who was a sports writer at Newsday for over four decades. He became a featured columnist in 1979. He joined the Newsday sports staff in 1960, spent a large part of his first 19 years there covering the Mets and Yankees. In 1988, his body of work as a columnist earned him a Pulitzer Prize nomination in commentary. In 2001, he began a Sunday column entitled The Last Word. His final column appeared March 30th, 2003, which I can't even believe it's been that long. It seems like yesterday to me because he was one of my you know, must-reads all the time. He's written three books, uh, Pitching Staff, The Best Team Money Can Buy, and Carrying Jackie's Torch, which is the one we're going to talk about about a lot tonight. It's a pleasure to welcome Steve Jacobson to 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Steve. Oh, good evening. There's one more book that you missed uh, about compulsive gambling uh, and it, it, it still curls my, ha- my hair I don't have much of it but uh, <laughs> to, to think of, of the situations that, uh, that people got into because they were, they were sports gambling and couldn't, couldn't put it down well, but that's, that's less, than, less fun okay. well, 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 how long ago was that book written? Um, say three years ago, which is interesting because three years ago, we at that point I don't believe any of the major sports were partners right. with all like these FanDuel and all right, this these is a total, totally different world. And now. and now it's you know legalized sports betting and, and sports books. It's just I, I am so against that, and I agree uh, with you. I have to agree with you because it bothers me, and I'm just waiting for the day that. Well, all right, let I was. Uh, in a doing a story in Pittsburgh uh, a bunch of years ago on a Friday afternoon, and they went into a barber shop, and there were a handful of guys betting on the high school football game that night. Um, that that scares me. I, I the the thought of uh, a a uh, a 17-year-old uh, high school basketball player on the foul line uh, uh, behind by. The, two points, and he's got two shots, and people are betting on the outcome. He's point um, shaving before he can shave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but before we talk about the, the two great baseball players we lost this past month, you covered the Islanders during their heyday. Yes. I want to get you, and we're not going to even say which side of the fence either one well, of us We spent 10 down. minutes arguing about this in the first hour of right. the show. How do you feel about the way the Islander fans treated John Tavares last night, Thursday night? Uh, I can't tell you that I'm an expert cause on on it because I d- really don't know what they did. I was in uh, in in Washington uh, babysitting for my grandson, so I can't tell you that. Uh, I know that I have enormous respect for the group of Islanders who won that team, uh, who won their uh, Stanley Cup four years in a row. Uh, that was perhaps the best. Team, I ever saw. So let me let me just bring you up to speed on, we do on the, get the way. Baseball mark. All right, don't worry. <laughs> I'm just going to bring you up to speed really quickly. So basically, the Islander fans were very upset at the way John Tavares left. You know, they felt they led them on. 
they boot them every time they touch the puck. Nasty chance throughout the night. Through the Islanders, or, right? Yeah. The, the Islanders, you know, organization had a tribute video to him. And they they booed the throughout the entire video. Not once did they ever cheer for him. So, you know, what do you think? That's the proper. Do they, do they have the right, basically, to to boo constantly yep. without cheering? And, and I, uh, the the athletes I saw who were booed. Essentially, the the great ones who were booed by when they were in visiting teams and so on, uh, except nobody ever booed Stan Musial even in Brooklyn. But uh, I think most of the players said, "So what? Uh, I'm going to do it." And if they don't like it, if they don't like me, too bad. It's when when the home crowd uh, gets on a home player that that hurts. Okay, so last month, we lost two players who were trailblazers of African-Americans in baseball, Don Newcomb and Frank Robinson. Yes. And the type of discrimination athletes and entertainers and African-Americans in general faced in the 1950s and 60s was brought to mind with the selection of Green Book as the best picture of last year's Oscar ceremony. So you could say it was a touch of irony that all this happened during Black History Month, but it does rekindle the discussion about Newcomb and Robinson and the backdrop in which against they began and continued their careers. So let's talk a little about Newcomb. How would you place him in historical perspective as a player? A very bad, very valuable, very important trailblazer. Uh, and, and I think unfairly criticized because he wasn't, he wasn't perfect. And uh, the, there's also the recognition that he drank himself out of, uh, out of sports. That's too bad. But when he emerged... Uh, as uh, the the first black player who was entitled to be a pitcher, if that was his strength, there was uh, a handful of black players at the time. Robinson and, and Campanella uh, on the Dodgers, clearly, and uh, there had been uh, no black player had ever been a starting a starting pitcher. Uh, certainly not in the World Series, because there was this concept that that was a that that they weren't black players weren't smart enough to be pitchers or shortstops or catchers. That there was a uh, a mystic cerebral uh, content to, to their game that that enabled them to be pitchers. Uh, and the black players didn't have that. They came up from from the Negro Leagues, and they played other positions. They were big and strong, or uh, what some people m- might have said, uh, big dumb, uh, big and dumb. So now, he played in the Negro Leagues before signing with the Dodgers. And then with Roy Campanella, he played for the first racially integrated baseball team in the 20th century, the Nashua Dodgers of the New England League. So given that the Dodgers... Uh, you know, and he got promoted into Montreal, where Jackie Robinson basically right. got his start. So, given that the Dodgers managed the promotion of their black ball players, keeping them playing for northern teams, was that an easier, you know, road to follow? Especially I since Newcomb had a batter in it. Was, it was I black. thought it was a bit of of genius of of uh, of uh, Branch Rickey to to know and understand, not just know, understand that. Sending a black player to the minor leagues in Georgia or or uh, or Mississippi was poisonous to him. It was it was going to to to, 
to immediately disqualify him. But there were no laws in uh, Montreal that said he, he, black and whites couldn't play on the same field. There was no uh, obstacle in uh, in in New Hampshire for uh, for for Campanella or for uh, for Newcomb. Except uh, the one incident that I read about is that uh, when uh, when Newcomb was at bat in uh, in one time in uh, in in Nashua, uh, the, the white catcher threw a fistful of dirt in his face, and uh, Robinson turned around and told him that if he did it again, uh, the catcher would find that he had a a, a separated shoulder, and uh, it was going to be very hard for him to get back into baseball. Uh, and Newcomb was big enough and strong enough to have done that. Now, for our our listeners who don't never saw him play, which is most of our listeners, and we never didn't really know about him. He won up the Rookie of the Year in 1949. He won 19 games in 1950 and nearly pitched the Dodgers to a pennant in 1951 before he was pulled in the ninth inning of the playoff game for a relief pitcher, well, for a pitcher named Ralph Branca. Branca. And Branca threw the homer to Bobby also, Thompson. I don't know if he you won. know this, AJ. He was also one of my dad's favorite players along with Joe Black, one of my really? father's two favorite players on those Dodgers. So teams. he went on. He won 27 games in 1955 when the Dodgers finally won a World Series. But in 1956, the arranger won the Cy Young and the most valuable player. He lost Game 7 of the World Series and didn't pitch well in the series. How much of that tarnished his reputation going forward? And the next question, looking, how much was his career and reputation you know, affected by the fact that he dealt with alcoholism for a good deal of that career? Well, he, uh, at, at the end of his time, uh, be, leaving baseball and, and even in uh, until his death. He blamed himself for his alcohol problem. And I don't know if uh, specifically how much that affected any individual game or any instance, but he said it, it was. And I spoke to him when he was trying to hang on with, with Cincinnati after uh, the, the Dodgers let him go. Uh, yeah, let him go. That they pushed him out. They didn't let him go. Uh, but uh, he said that he was now trying to make up for it because he was he was guilty. He didn't he didn't give give the game the effort that he should have, and he was drinking uh, because he was drinking. And and he took it back to when he was fourteen and fifteen years old that he was drinking. He he remembers describing being. Uh, uh, listening to the uh, the attack on on Pearl Harbor and and he was drinking beer. Um, he was 15 years wow. old. Wow. So uh, that that, uh, that how do you know just yeah. where it came and 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 what it did to him? I know that he was vilified for losing this the seventh game of the 1956. World Series uh, on uh, getting beaten nine nothing, uh, and two, Yogi Berra hit two home runs off him, and that's the one that gives him what the e- eternal uh, label of being gutless. Uh, I, I'm sure that couldn't be true. Well, it's it certainly exaggerated. Maybe drunk. 
but I don't think without courage. He won as as a kid in 19, uh, 1941. Mm-hmm. He won the game that put the Dodgers in the playoff that he lost uh, yeah. on, on uh, and Ralph Rankle lost yeah. on uh, on Bobby Thompson's home run. So I know you told me that Newcomb was one of the only two players. Bill White was the other who declined to speak with you for your book, Carrying Jackie's Torch. Uh, true. Uh, Did he ever tell you he, why? He never told me why, except I have found quotes that uh, they didn't that the writers didn't think I was the uh, the most uh, friendly person and. Uh, and that was true. Uh, let them write what they wanted. I didn't mm. care. Uh, that's the quote that I read. So Frank Robinson did speak with you for the book. And unlike uh, Newcomb, he did spend part of his minor league career in the South, in Columbia, South Carolina. What kind of discrimination did he face? Either there in his stops in Utah or Oklahoma? Well, uh, in Ogden, uh, Ogden, Mont- uh, Ogden uh, yeah. Utah. Yeah. He he couldn't go to the movies. Uh, Frank Robinson is, was an admitted uh, not a drinker, but a movie uh, buff, and uh, and you, you you find places where you you go when you're 17 or 18 or 19 years old, and they tell you that your money's no good in the movie house, uh, and and uh, that goes on. Um, it's very very painful situation. He had a time when he left his he and another black player in the minor leagues decided not to go uh, where the uh, where his team was uh, on on a road trip, and uh, they talked each other out of it because they thought it would have turned them uh, turned management against them. Well. Frank Robinson was a great player. I think he's perhaps the most underrated of of the great players. It the it just escapes uh, that his his contribution was so profound to the uh, to the Baltimore Orioles that uh, they were the the best team uh, I thought I saw in the uh, in all of the the sixties that decade. Uh, he was uh, a most valuable player. He was um, uh, he's the only player who was the most valuable player in both oh, leagues. Right. He, he was MVP with Cincinnati as a young player, and when the team celebrated its uh, winning its its pennant uh, and the team had a party, Frank Robinson and Veda Pinson were rejected by the owner of the club where the team had its party. Uh, some lady said, uh, who saw what was happening pointed out to the owner that that's Frank Robinson and that's Veda Pinson. Uh, and, and the owner opened, opened the door and let them in, and Robinson and Pinson walked in that door and out the other and went to their own party. And then uh, uh, a, a couple of years later, Frank Robinson was described by the owner or the general manager of the Cincinnati Reds, uh, an old 30, and traded him in one, perhaps the the most one-sided trade in history for a uh, a reasonable pitcher, but uh, they were getting a great, great player who made 
things happen for the Orioles. Not only that, it's interesting because you mentioned Frank Robinson and we're talking about him and he just passed away. I'm in the, the midst of, well, the book with AJ, but yeah. another book with Howie about the 1971 All-Star Game, which had 25 future Hall of Famers. And I've been watching that game over and over again and picking up on little things. And this is 1971, okay? When Frank Robinson came to bat in that game, Kurt Gowdy talks about how Frank Robinson has mentioned that he'd like to get into managing. All right, now think about this. There had not been a black manager, Which is an African-American manager yeah. in all of baseball ever. And in 1971, Frank Robinson was thinking of it. Not only was he thinking of it, he had spent the offseason right. in the Mexican League in minor leagues as well, being a manager, grooming himself, and Earl Weaver told him, no, no, you can't be a manager yet. You have way too much baseball still to go. And he was right. I mean, but, but it is but it, amazing. It also gets to the question, four years later, he actually right. was managing in the major leagues in 1975, and he's a player right. manager. So what was, in terms of the broad scheme of things, was that even a greater accomplishment, becoming the first black manager, than all the achievements he had as a player? Well, the, let's, let's take it back a, a little bit. He had the most profound influence on, on players on his team that I ever saw. This second, the second one on that list is Keith Hernandez, who uh, I had a, a, a disagreement with Don Zimmer, how, and he said, how, do, how can one player make other players play better? Well, if you saw Frank Robinson play uh, often enough and saw the influence that he had on the concentration and the effort that those Orioles gave and what, uh, and what Keith Hernandez gave to the Mets, who were uh, soft and, um, and, and didn't have the heat, they made those teams better, and that's what something that a manager uh, wishes he could do. Sometimes he can. Uh, perhaps Robinson did. Uh, maybe the front office didn't like the way he handled things. Uh, but uh, it, uh, enough people gave him uh, other chances to manage, and he did a pretty good job with teams that really weren't weren't contenders. You know, that's sort of strange, because if you think of great players, there's, there's a body of thought that they have trouble as managers because they can't relate to players who weren't as good as they were. That was the biggest knock, I think, against Ted Williams as a manager. So was Robinson then able to cross that bridge because of uh, such a way communities? In a lot of ways, he did, uh, and, and that concept is, uh, is very valid, that, that a really good player... Uh, the game is easy and can't understand why other players can't do it as well as they did. Uh, I don't think that was Robinson's problem. I thought there were some players on the team, some of the black players thought that he should have given them an edge or a break on things, and uh, other people didn't have this, the skills. He was a competent manager, uh, and he got, he got one team that lost its first uh, first. 12 or 11 games in the season, uh, and it wasn't good enough. Uh, but when he was playing, and his he, he he did a good enough job as a manager. You, you know, there's only one winner uh, each year, uh, or two if you want to count pennants. Uh, and uh, so a lot of them come and go. And whether they were good managers or not, some of them... Uh, some of them get undersold. 
Yeah, the and other, I thought he did. The other thing and, that, that also gets lost about Frank Robinson is, you know, the way he, he had himself on the field, you said that drove his other teammates similar to Keith Hernandez and that drive. But he also knew, you know, how to walk that line because he was a big part of the kangaroo court that the, the Orioles put into place, which was one of the main reasons how they melded together with, with such great talent on that team. Brooks Robinson, you know, Frank Robinson, Boog Powell, you know, Mark Belanger, there were a lot in the entire pitching staff. So he knew he knew the makeup of that clubhouse and was able to meld them together as well. So that was a very important factor. Yes, yes. Uh, the, one of the first exhibition games he played with, with the Orioles, he went into second base hard enough to break a double play in an exhibition game. Uh, and uh, the manager said pretty soon uh, all the other guys on the team were doing the same thing. He had an electric quality uh, of, of, that they all respected. Players, uh, and the, the interesting uh, association he had with, with the Orioles, uh, who were the, the, the team of Brooks Robinson, who was from Little Rock Central uh, High School, where uh, the, the president had to call in uh, the National Guard to get some black kids into school. Uh, and Brooks, it was Brooks Robinson's Baltimore team. And he welcomed Robins, Frank Robinson, and it became Robins, Frank Robinson's team, largely the kangaroo court. The players trusted him. And uh, Frank told me that he never was ref- whenever the players went out to, after dinner uh, or for dinner after a ball game, he was guaranteed that they would, they would ask him to come with them, and he did. And uh, back in Baltimore, which was still a southern city, he played there six years and never once was invited to a, to a white player's home in, uh, in Baltimore. Um, that's, and, and was rejected at the movies in Baltimore, too. So, Steve, anything, anything you're doing these days that you want to let the, our listeners know about? Any more books uh, in the works or anything like that? Um, I think about things. Uh, <laughs> I, I am too disturbed by uh, the, uh, the, the publisher of Jackie's Torch that uh, it came out for Black History Month in, in, uh, nine, in 2009. It was the year that the... the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame inducted 14 players from the Negro Leagues in en masse, and the publisher never offered my book on black uh, baseball players to the bookstore in in Cooperstown. So uh, uh, I get angry every time I think about that. Well, it has been absolutely great having you. I think we do something on gambling and sports. Yeah, we definitely will have have you back. Really appreciate it, Steve. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Okay. Well, glad to be with you. Thanks. Steve Jacobson, one of my must-reads back in the day.